1 John 4, 1-6 says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Amen. Please pray with me. Well, Father, we love you and we worship you and we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. And really all we can do is come and just sing hallelujah. You are the God who saves. We worship you. We celebrate you. We bless you. We bring you glory today. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Today we continue our series through 1 John. Last week, the final verse that we heard, even the final half verse, John said this, we know that God lives in us. We know that the Son of God, Jesus himself, lives in it, lives in us by the spirit he gave us. John assumed that his readers had had personal experience with the spirit of God. David then concluded with, really in the four and a half years that I've been here, probably one of the most powerful expressions of our longing to see God move in our day. He talked about a few different things. The ones that stuck out to me the most was the Hebrides revival, this town, where it was as if this circle had been drawn around it. And as you stepped into the sphere, people would just fall down on their faces in worship. When I hear stories like that, I am bursting with longing to see God move. John assumes that people have seen God move in their lives. So the question for us today as we dig in is simply this. What would it take to see God move in our day? How might we position ourselves to see him work in that type of power? To that end, we read 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. It says this, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. John writes in a world where he sees the spirit of the Antichrist and the spirit of God, the spirit of life and the spirit of death, and his in initial invitation is simply this, test the spirits. Sometimes I like to wait till the very end to give you my million dollar idea, because every idea I have is worth a million dollars. I hope you know that. <laughs> I'm going to give it to you right at the beginning. 
It's simply this. To see God move in our day will require the gift of discernment. This is John's initial invitation. Test the spirits. He assumes you've experienced God. And then when he goes on to continue to talk about that experience, he says, test the spirits. It's the gift of discernment. You see, John lived in a day that was filled with gods and fairies and spiritual forces. He lived with the Roman gods of Jupiter and Apollo and Minerva and Mars and many other besides. He knew about the spiritual realities that were at work. There was no segregation between spiritual life and home life and work life and political life. It was all mashed together. Our day is more like a flat pancake, and let me describe to you why. I remember being in middle school and my mom teaching me how to make pancakes, which really just meant she made the batter and I just put it in the pan. Take the batter, put it in the pan. For whatever reason, I thought that in order to make sure the pancake was cooked all the way around after flipping it, the best thing to do would be to take my spatula and to just push down as hard as possible on the pancake. I wanted to make sure it got cooked, and I thought there was something about the pressure of my spatula that would make it cook well. Obviously, you know, it was not a good pancake. All the air, all the fluffiness of the pancake got squished out. That's what makes a pancake good is the lightness, the fluffiness. I think the same thing has happened in our day when it comes to spiritual realities. See, we live in a day that has really wanted to define life exclusively in terms of that which is seen, the things we can touch, see, hear, taste, etc. We want to remove anything that is real but invisible. We want to squish it out, and we want dense, flat pancakes. The reality is that there are invisible forces and powers that are just as real as you and me. So what the issue is, is we live in a day that is attempted to have dense pancakes, but is longing for the light, fluffy ones. I think this is part of the resurgence recently in Christian circles around spiritual disciplines, around scripture, around fasting, around Sabbath, around silence and solitude. We don't want to just hear about God. We want to genuinely experience him. This also happens in other ways as well. It happens in terms of our, there's like new age spiritualities that will use tarot cards or gems to experience God. Or in as immigration continues to increase in the West, we're seeing more and more household gods or sacred relics or shrines. This even happens in some secular ways through something like mindfulness of just trying to open ourselves up to whatever type of powers that be. There is a longing for no more dense pancakes, but some light, fluffy ones that have the fullness of meaning, of purpose, of power that is greater than us, of an identity that we do not forge on our own but is given to us. There's a longing for something else. John's point is that just because you're engaging with the transcendent, it doesn't mean you're meeting with God. John wants us to experience the powers of heaven, but he wants us to discern how that could be possible. So then he gives us the specific indication to know whether or not this is the Spirit of God. Verse 2, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. This is interesting to me because it's simply an intellectual doctrine. 
Elsewhere, John has talked about how we can see the power of God at work in our love for one another, in our obedience to the laws and the commandments of God, in our imitation of Jesus Christ. But here, it's not so much about what we do, it's about what we think, what we believe, to acknowledge that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. I want to camp out here, so I give you another point to just acknowledge specifically that discernment is an exercise of the mind. I think this is something we tend to resist. 500 years ago, there was a movement called the Enlightenment, which was attempting to recognize all of life as contained in the human mind, as rational belief being the best pathway to human flourishing. And since then, there's just been a resistance of saying we aren't just intellectual beings, we are relational beings, we are spiritual beings, we are emotional beings. We would now probably have swung the pendulum to the opposite side, where we don't emphasize the mind so much as we emphasize our own personal experience. Would that be fair to say? Do you think so? In general, not for everyone, but in general, we highly value the experience of individuals. I think one of the ways that this gets expressed is how we think of sin. We would be more likely to think of sin in terms of hatred versus love, in terms of greed versus generosity, in terms of actions of pride versus actions of humility. It's about our actions. We aren't going to think of things as sinful if they simply reside in our mind, if it's simply about the way that we think. There's a story that C.S. Lewis wrote that was about a bus that would go from hell to heaven and essentially give people a chance after death to see if they wanted to commit themselves to Jesus. And as people would board this bus, they would eventually be reunited with someone they knew on earth in order to see if they could have a conversation to try and change someone's mind. So there's a story of Frank and Richard, Frank being the one who was boarding the bus from hell to heaven, Richard being the one in heaven, talking about this issue, the issue of the mind. Frank says this, This is worse than I expected. Do you really think people are penalized for their honest opinions, even assuming for the sake of argument that those opinions were mistaken? Richard, do you really think there are no sins of intellect? There are indeed, Dick. There is, wait, you thought, did you think that I was just, that's his name, just to be clear. I heard some gasps. There is hidebound prejudice and intellectual dishonesty and timidity and stagnation. But honest opinions fearlessly followed. They are not sins. This would be the common assumption of our day. When John writes that every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, what he's specifically writing against is people in his day who were resisting the fact that the Son of God had come in human form. They thought it was just an illusion. That's an, actually, that's an intellectual belief. That's a mind-based thing. It's what you think. John is saying that your mind has power to recognize whether or not God is at work, and your mind also has power to resist God at the same time. He's in a passage where he's talking about the importance of experiencing God, and then he emphasizes the discernment that is an exercise of the mind. Both these things are necessary. So let me speak to both of them specifically. You might be a more mind-oriented person, a critical thinker, analytical. You like wrestling with thoughts. That's a good thing. Lean into that. Allow your study of scripture, of culture, of society to be part of God's contribution in you and through you. He made you this way. 
and also your mind isn't enough, that the tendency for those of us who, like myself, tend to be more mind-oriented is that we would be stuck in a situation where we are always testing the spirits and never recognizing the spirit of God. That we would be having this ingrained cynicism, doubting whether or not God is ever at work. Yes, lean into the reality that God has made you with your mind, but also know that he is a God who is at work in our personal experience. Some of you are on the opposite side of things. You are an experience-oriented person. Did you know God made you that way too? God made you to recognize the fullness of life in all of it, all the joys and all the sorrows, to experience it, to see God in the midst of circumstances. Lean into it. And also know that it's not enough. The danger would be that we would not heed the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul being one of the early leaders of the church. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, he urges them that they would no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. He's nervous about ideas, about our lack of ability to discern with our minds appropriately what is good, what is true, what is right. In fact, there's a long legacy in this. As we have said many times in this series, the devil, the ultimate force of darkness, John describes him here as the spirit of the Antichrist. His primary tactic is deceit. We've gone to Genesis 3 multiple times, seeing that the way he turned humanity into corruption, that the way he turned their hearts away from God and to themselves was with a lie. See, we need to recognize that discernment is an exercise of the mind and also be fascinated with what specifically John lands on as the place where the power of God resides. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ, that King Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. In other words, when you tell the Christmas story, the power and the presence of God is in the room. I just love this because that's not how I think of the Christmas story typically. I think of it in terms of quaint, cute, cookies, warm, fuzzy feelings, family being together, all of which I love. But to acknowledge the fact that the Son of God, the Lord of the universe, entered earth in human form, to acknowledge that is to say God is in the room and is working. When you go home this Christmas and you read through a Christmas story, when you share about the heart of Christmas, why we celebrate this season, the Spirit of God is at work. He is speaking in you and he's speaking through you. In this moment of acknowledging the vast difference between God's grandeur, majesty, and power and his deep humility to enter the vulnerability of a human child who from his birth was at risk of being murdered by the rulers and the authorities of his day. And eventually, 33 years, they, 33 years later, they succeeded To acknowledge this story of the power of God and the vulnerability of humanity is to acknowledge the presence of God in the room. But it's not about our power, it's about God's. In fact, we get to see this in the next verse. 
Chapter 4, verse, verse, verse 4. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. John talks about how you have overcome the powers of darkness and the forces of evil in the world. You've overcome them. But listen again to the reason why. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. Why? Well, it's certainly not because of anything you did. It's because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So here's what happens. Oftentimes when we start to hear stories about the power of God at work, the Hebrides revival as one example, if you get your heart set aflame, what you want to do is figure out how can I participate in this? How can I see it happen in my day? What do I have to do? One of the consistent trends as these moves of God happen is that there is no silver bullet. Yes, people step out in prayer, they love their neighbors, they seek God wholeheartedly, but it ultimately has to be God moving. This is something that is important about the practice of discernment. See, discernment reminds us that we are not the heroes of the story. It's about recognizing the fact that God has already moved in Jesus, that his spirit is already at work, and we simply wait to see what he's going to do. This is a common prayer, in fact, in Israel's history. In the Psalms, they would frequently cry out, waiting for God. We're going to go to Psalm 130 as one of many examples of this, where the psalmist cries out to see him move, cries out for mercy, and then in verse 5 and 6, we see his posture. It says this, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. See, the psalmist knows that he doesn't have anything to offer on his own. He simply has to wait for what God will do. This reminds me of a story when I was about eight or nine hanging outside with one of the neighbor kids about the same age as me. And we are not really doing much of anything. We're probably making fart noises with our armpits hanging out. And we suddenly get the idea to see who can run the fastest. It's probably about 100 meters down the street for what we are racing. So we're sprinting and we're tired and we probably stopped before we even made it this 100 meter dash. And I just remember without like, like, there was no indication that he was going to do this. It was as if this guy, his, his head just like snapped to me and said, you know what? My dad could have run it in five seconds. <laughs> Setting aside the fact that that would be twice as fast as the world record, I snap my head back at him and say, well, my dad could do it in four. And thus begins the competition. No, I think my dad actually, I was wrong. He could do it in three seconds. And then I would say, no, my dad's going to show up with a rocket ship. And then he's going to do it in negative four seconds. He's going to actually time travel. My, you just got to wait for my dad to show up. See, there was this posture where we knew we had nothing to offer in this situation. We tried to run 100 meters. After 20 meters, we probably sat down and threw rocks at worms or worms at rocks. One of the two. I'm not sure. We knew we didn't have what it took. But our dads did. And when they showed up, we were going to show the other person what was up. See, this is the posture of the psalmist. The psalmist knows that for his longings, what's going to happen in the world are far greater than what he himself could accomplish. He knows that if he was simply dreaming out on his own efforts, what is going to be accomplished is incredibly small. But if he instead has the posture of waiting for the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, 
something far greater could happen. See, whatever dreams you have, whatever desires you have for your life, if they are limited to what you yourself are able to accomplish, you are dreaming far, far too small. We need to have this posture of dreaming for something that only God himself could accomplish. This is what the psalmist had when he says, I wait for the Lord. He also says, I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. He is waiting with a posture not just of inactivity, but of saying, God, I want to see you move. I don't want to miss it. When it happens, I want to be there. In our terms, this is called discernment. This is called saying, I don't want to be oblivious to the fact that you're moving. I want to recognize, I want to see it, I want to be aware of when you move, God. But John does something significant. See, in the psalm, it's all future tense. It's all about waiting for what God will do one day. But in 1 John 4, verse 4, it's not future tense. John does not write, you, dear children, are from God, and you will overcome them one day, because the one who will be in you is greater than the one who is in the world. No, he speaks in the past tense. He says this, you, dear children, are from God, and you have overcome them because the one who is in you already is greater than the one who is in the world. In the Old Testament, the first portion of the Bible before Jesus returned, we were simply in a season of just waiting for God to show up. What John is inviting us into is the recognition that God already has shown up. The Old Testament, this first portion is called the season of visitation by scholars, meaning the Spirit of God would show up on occasion. The New Testament is called the season of habitation because no longer does the Spirit of God visit people occasionally. The Spirit of God resides within all who follow Jesus. The Spirit of God has been unleashed into creation by Jesus' death and resurrection. The Spirit of God is already at work. The reason we need discernment to see God move is not because we will first posture ourselves to be a discerning people and then God's going to move. It's because God is already moving. We just don't know how to see him yet. So we need discernment to test the spirits, to see him at work. And John's going to give us two specific areas of discernment to grow into this. The first one we read in verse 5. They are, that is John speaking about the Antichrist, which Dave's already done a great message where he mentioned that the Antichrist are those who are resistant and hostile to the way of Jesus. He's speaking to, about the Antichrist. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. So there's a system where someone is pulled out and platformed from out of the world. They have a certain message that they communicate based on what they experienced in the world and then this is assumed and understood within the world. Let me use Justin Bieber as an example. And to clarify, I am not saying that Justin Bieber is the Antichrist. I'm just using him as an example of how this works. Justin Bieber, at 15 years old, released Baby, and he was an international icon almost immediately. He was also 15 years old. So he writes this song, Baby, he's given this massive platform, but most of his lyricism, most of his messaging, most of his storytelling is just based on the naivety of a 15-year-old's love life, right? And people understood that. This is just the expectation. This is the world he's grown up in. That's the story he's going to tell. 
as Justin Bieber continues to sing, perform, write, or have other people write for him these songs, no longer is he just someone who is expressing what he's already learned. He's actually shaping future generations and their perception of love life. That's what John is saying here. I'm not saying at this point it's good or bad. I'm just saying that's how it works. Then John acknowledges that there's a certain portion when John refers to the world here, he's not referring to creation, he's referring to a place where dysfunction gets normalized. He's saying that this process of platforming, of storytelling, and of receiving can be co-opted by the powers of darkness. That there's actually something in this rhythm, this cycle, that can lead to deceitful ideas being normalized in our day. So what John wants to acknowledge is the, one of the key points of discernment we need is simply this, cultural discernment. We need to learn how to read our day about the ideas that are at work. The three primary areas where we should probably think of going to are movies, music, and social media. You could go to books, you could go to academic situations, you could go to politicians, but most of our content intake nowadays is, mu is movies or shows, but shows doesn't start with an M, so movies or music or social media. Just to give you an example of what this looks like, um, John Legend's song, All of Me. We haven't sung together in a little bit. I haven't made you sing, so sing along if you know this song. All of me loves all of you. Love your curves and all your edges. All your perfect imperfections. Give your all to me. I'll give my all to you. You're my end and my beginning. Even when I lose, I'm winning. Thank you for the three of you who sang. Wow. Lauren was holding it together with me. Thank you. That is a great song. I love that song. It also has some deceitful ideas in it. I love you. Even all your perfect imperfections, even the things that are wrong with you are so perfect, I love that too. It's a bit of an unrealistic standard. You are my end and my beginning. That's language in scripture that would be reserved for God himself. But you are my everything, all I care about. It's a deceitful idea that is just wrapped up in our present cultural moment. That's the type of thing that John is talking about. To be clear, it's also, cultural discernment doesn't just mean looking at the things that are bad, it can also mean looking at the things that are good. This is a great Robin Williams line, line in Goodwill Hunting, where he talks about how we can only feel loss when we learn to love something more than we love ourselves. And within that is this powerful line about grief, about the importance of vulnerability, and what true love looks like all wrapped together. Cultural discernment means recognizing that too. I also want to acknowledge that this can be challenging, so I'm gonna give you a little cheat code. I think we have a QR code. Shamron, do we have a QR code? Yes. If you scan this, you're gonna to go to an organization called Axis, and they have something called the Culture Translator. It is a weekly email that just analyzes teen culture. Teen culture specifically is the one I've given you because teen culture just ends up being broader culture anyways. If you scan this, it is like a cheat code to knowing what's going on culturally. They do biblical discernment alongside of it. I have used this for years as a youth pastor. I just don't feel like doing the work most of the time. <laughs> Straight, straight up. So take that. If you don't have time to get the QR code, because we'll take it down in a couple of seconds here, it is Axis, the culture translator. 
going to give you five more seconds. Okay, we're going to move on. Verse 6, another type of discernment that John has. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Let me acknowledge this. If I didn't read this passage and I just stood up here and said, if you listen to me, you know God. And if you don't listen to me, you don't know God. You should probably walk out of the room. So what gives John the right to say this? Well, John here is not referring to Christians in general. He's not referring to Christian leaders in general. He's referring to a very specific group called the apostles. Sometimes when John uses this plural form of we or us in his letter, he's referring to Christians in general. Here and occasionally elsewhere, he's referring to this group that he has defined in the very first verse of the letter as those who have heard, who have seen with their eyes, and who have looked at their, with their hands and with their touched, sorry, have looked at and with their hands touched the word of life that is Jesus Christ. See, John defines these leaders as the people who have personally walked with Jesus. Jesus calls them his 12 disciples, and they become the early leaders of the church throughout history. He's saying whoever listens to these apostles, they actually had a unique type of authority more than other humans because of their relationship with Jesus. That's great and all. John was writing in a day where people could have come and talked to him about what he was saying. So what do we do 2,000 years later when they are no longer alive? This was something that the early church wrestled with, and eventually in the 4th century, they landed on what we call the New Testament. They already had the first portion of the Bible, the Old Testament. Jesus considered it his Bible, so the apostles considered it theirs as well. But as the apostles died and there were no longer eyewitness like people who were following Jesus, it was only future generations, how could they have this type of authority? So in the fourth century, there were councils of people who met and who brought together the New Testament as a place to recognize these are the teachings of the apostles. One of the key standards was actually, is this from an apostle? Is this someone who walked with Jesus? Is it based on, even if uh, in the situation of someone like Luke, who did not necessarily walk with Jesus, are his stories based on the apostles' teachings, direct encounters with these apostles? So this is who John is referring to. What does that look like practically? Because the second type of discernment is going to be this, biblical discernment. But the vast, I'm going to call it stereotype of pastors, is to finish a, mes- finish a message with saying, just read your Bible and you're going to be okay. How many of you have struggled to read your Bible in your lifetime? <laughs> Thank you. For those of you who are honest. I want to make it just a little bit more tangible and concrete by giving you a specific practice that I put into place that I've learned from someone else. There are a variety of ways to immerse ourselves in Scripture. When John talks about listening, he's not just talking about information intake, which, like, we do more of that today than ever before through podcasts, through sermons, that type of thing. We have more access to information. In Hebrew understanding, listening doesn't just mean, like, intake. It also means responding in obedience which means that we have to have a form of engagement with Scripture that's not just going to, like, go in one ear, out the other, but actually, like, reside deep within us. 
Here are a few options what you could do, and then I'm going to focus on one. You could go into deep intellectual study. This is something in the last 200 years or so. Critical study of Scripture is far stronger than it ever has been. You could imagine that you are immersed in the story you're reading itself. Classically, this has been called contemplation. You could take small portions of Scripture and just go through them slowly, slowly, allowing it to go through your mind. Classically, this has been called meditation. You could memorize portions of Scripture. You could join a group and discuss Scripture. Today, I just have brought my journal because I want to talk about one that's been significant to me, and that is journaling. A method that I have used for a number of years is called the SOAP method. Many of you will have heard of it. If you've been a student here in youth the last couple of years, you've been forced to do it, and I know you love it. <laughs> SOAP stands for Scripture Observation Application Prayer. It means that you read a portion of Scripture, you observe what's sticking out to you, you think about how it applies to you or your world, and then you end in prayer. What I want to do is I just want to read a couple journal entries for you of how I have engaged with Scripture and how I allow this to be something I listen to consistently. I've been in 2 Chronicles lately. This is the entry from December 2nd. 2 Chronicles 6.18 says this, But will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? So I read a couple chapters. This verse stuck out to me. And then the bolded parts are the parts within there that really stuck out to me. That's the observation section. Then you're going to read here how the application comes out, and I end in prayer. It says this. We have become desensitized to this reality, God dwelling with us here on earth. How can this overload our senses once again? How might our minds stop in awe at the wonder of your majesty revealed to us in such intimacy? Defamiliarize us, O oh God. We need more wonder, more awe, more of a sense of the magnificence of your glory. I don't write much, but the reason I do this is because I actually really suck at reading my Bible. I have many times read my Bible, put it away, and then 10 seconds later I have no clue what I just read. As I do this, I often get distracted. This often is hard for me. I'm just zoning out, thinking about disc golf, thinking about Christmas presents, no clue what's going on. I actually use a physical journal rather than typing it out because it forces me to go slower so I can't rip through this process. I have to slow down. That's why I do this. I also want to acknowledge that in many seasons, it can be hard to have that type of slow pace, particularly for you young parents. This might be challenging to get into a rhythm, and that's also okay. Part of your season is encountering God in your child's eyes, learning to love as he loved. One last entry as an example, because I think it's fitting for our day. December 8th, this is 2 Chronicles 17, verses 9 to 10. And they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them. They went about through all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. And the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah, and they made no war against Jehoshaphat. This is what I wrote. By teaching the word of God in Judah, fear fell upon the kingdoms around Judah. Wow. Lord, we have devalued your word. I have devalued your word. Invigorate me with longing for it and with the capacity to teach it. Set our hearts aflame for your voice, your message, your gospel. See, one of the realities of our day is though we have far more information than ever before, 
I think that we are more interested in novelty than we are in wisdom. We want something new. We come oftentimes here in this room and are interested in hearing something we've never heard before rather than coming back to the fact, hey, are we proclaiming Jesus Christ having come in the flesh? What we want to do is a people who slowly, bit by bit, by immersing ourselves in Scripture, grow in the ability to discern the work of God by seeing what he has already done and said in here. Let me close with this quote from Hans Urs von Balthasar. What a name. It says this, We think that God's word has been heard on earth for so long that by now it is almost used up that it is about time for some new word, as if we had the right to demand one. We fail to see that it is we ourselves who are used up and alienated, whereas the word resounds with the same vitality and freshness as ever. So may we be a people who, in learning to engage with this story, learning to acknowledge that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, would also see that this process of Biblical discernment and cultural discernment is the process wherein we see the work of God in our day. That those two things are intertwined forever. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we worship you. And today we simply ask that we would see you move. Show us where you are at work. Give us the ability to discern, to test the spirits, and to be a people who are anchored in you and yet still day by day believe that you are doing something powerful in our midst. Pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. We're going to invite the prayer teams forward. And as always, just a couple of specific invitations. If you are in a place where your heart is just burning with desire to see God move and you just find yourself longing personally, you don't even know what that expression is. You just want to be part of seeing God move, whatever it takes, almost like a commissioning come forward and say that. I just want to be part of seeing God move. Receive prayer for that. Secondly, if you just want to grow in the ability to discern, if you feel like that's part of God's calling on your life right now is to discern what's going on in our day, come and receive prayer for that as well. Thanks.